0: Eighty-four, seventy-four. Good morning, everyone. It's such a great privilege to open the Word this morning with you. Let's take our Bibles and open to the 37th chapter of Ezekiel, Ezekiel 37. The story is uh, very well known, and we will uh, read it together and then ask for the Lord to, to bless this encouragement this morning from God's Word. Ezekiel 37. Reading from the NIV. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? I said, O sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe into these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They say, our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Oh, my people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my spirit in you and you will live and I will settle you in your land. Then you will know that I am the Lord who has spoken and I have done it, declares the Lord. Let's ask for God's blessing on his word. Lord, we frequently admit that if your spirit doesn't fill us, both in the reading and in the proclamation of your word, all of this is useless, and we do that again this morning and ask that you, as you do in this amazing passage, would fill us with confidence and with hope, Lord, that we will rise again because of the resurrection of our Savior. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This chapel talk is going to be a little bit uh, autobiographical uh, because it's not a sermon, and I want to share a little bit of some of the things uh, that I've gone through in seminary, so you'll forgive me if I talk too much about myself. Um, When we arrive at seminary, everything is shot through with anticipation, with excitement. I don't know if you are like me, I don't know if there's some uh, first-year students here and uh, Or if you just remember that first semester, you get here and you cannot wait to just dig into your reading, dig into the languages, and learn so much about the Lord and about his word. For me personally, I was gonna spend 10, 15 minutes at least reading each page assigned to me, underlining it, reflecting on it, thinking about it. (laughs) And then I actually started the work here. It was so much harder than I thought. Preaching is incredibly difficult. And we, we learn here to, to take all these different tools and different disciplines, whether it be uh, Greek and Hebrew, whether it be church history and systematic theology. And we, we have all of this moment that we are working towards and bringing all these pieces together in the moment of preaching. And that is very hard. <laughs> It's been crippling for me sometimes to feel like all of the education comes down to that one moment where you have to know, Lord, what should I say? I wanna reflect your word accurately and I wanna do what you're calling me to do and to say. I've Come to some times in seminary where I've wondered, is this the right thing for me right now? Uh, It's not going the way that I thought and maybe I shouldn't um, persevere. And so this is a chapel talk answering that Question for me and and for for you, hopefully. Is it all worth it that we've come to seminary? Is it all worth it that we have uh, given up some things, maybe even disconnected ourselves from some of our families, moved uh, far distances to take up the learning of God's Word and the treasuring of the study of His Word? I hope that you're persuaded. That the doctrine of the resurrection gives you confidence that your work here matters. I hope that that's what you believe as you head out from chapel this morning. A life invested, devoted to Christ, whether it's in scholarship or teaching or parenting or whether it's street sweeping or preaching, it matters because of the resurrection of Christ you have probably been told your degree is not gonna monetize. (laughs) Whether you're an MDiv student and you've gotten deeply into loans or whether you are uh, an MA or MHT student, you may ask yourself sometimes, is it worth it that I'm here? The reality of death, not only physical death, but spiritual death and doubt, attacks our confidence that What we're doing here matters. As context for our message in front of us, our passage in front of us this morning, I wanna go back to where God's people began. And that was with Abraham. He was uh, an old man and when his body was as good as dead, the scriptures tell us, he was promised that he would have an endless, innumerable amount of children in the future. Kings would come from him and they would fill lands that were offered and given to Abraham. And for Abraham, what did that look like in his life, in his actual physical life lived before the Lord? It looked like a tiny burial plot for his wife. That's the physical property that he received. Everything else that was of the promise of God was only received by faith. And he was told, even with the son that he was given, surrender up your son. Give him to me um, in sacrifice and destroy him. And Hebrews eleven nineteen says, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. And now the children of Abraham, those children of the promise, the people of God, who were the answer to Abraham's longings and his hopes and all of his dreams for the future, are now hopelessly in exile. And they're asking the same questions that Abraham was asking throughout his life. Can my sacrifice to God really matter? Can The hope and all the expectation and the anticipation that I've put into this life, walking before the Lord, can that actually matter? So as we come to our passage, I wanna look at it under three headings. This is for you, Dr. Kim, alliteration. So first, surveying the situation, surveying the situation. And if you have your text in front of you, Ezekiel 37, Ezekiel is led into this valley, um, and he surveys what has happened to what later the text will tell us is the entire house of Israel. Not only does he see the condition of God's people figuratively, but he experiences it with all of his senses. The text says, saviv, saviv, he he walks all around, the NIV translation is probably pretty good, back and forth throughout this valley of bones. And there's a cadence to the prophets walking Around The text says, behold, and then there's one pronouncement made, and behold, and then there's a second pronouncement made. And so looking at the uh, the situation, surveying the damage, two things uh, come out in the passage. First is about the scope of the damage. Everywhere he looks, bones are strewn. There's nowhere he can walk where there isn't cracking and clicking of bones underneath his feet. Death for God's people has become utterly inescapable and they are all under a hopeless condemnation and the scope is everywhere. Um, They can't escape this hopelessness. But second, the text says, the bones were very dry. Lest you think that there's any possibility that these bones had some life left in them, The elements, the atmosphere has utterly penetrated the bones. One commentator, Patrick Fairbairn writes this, so thoroughly bleached and dried by long exposure to atmosphere are the bones that all apparent capability of life had left them. Like your throat, like my throat right now, after long hours of uh, time without drinking, these bones were very dry. The bones were compromised by the elements and they themselves had lost any hope of life. All apparent capability of life had left them. That's the condition that they're in. So the prophet is asked to give his opinion, which is kind of interesting, isn't it? The prophet's asked to give his opinion about this surveying damage that he's looking out at over these bones. Oh, can these bones live? As pastors, future pastors, as parents in the future, you will be asked about the damage that's happening in ministry and the damage that's going down in your personal lives. You're going to be asked a question similar to this question. Can this live? And it's very wise how Ezekiel responds, isn't it? You're going to be asked as a pastor, is my son going to persevere in the faith? I don't know about him right now. Will my marriage make it, pastor? What secrets can you share to make that happen? What what method of parenting will ensure my children grow up just perfectly well-adjusted in this age? And the right answer for those questions is, the Lord knows. There's something beautiful about the wisdom of this answer as he surveys the damage and as the Lord is asking for his opinion about what's gonna happen, there's something so right about his deferral of what is asked. So why is this so wise? First, the prophet doesn't speculate. If you've read uh, Calvin and his institutes, you know he doesn't really like speculation. He likes what the word has revealed. He likes what's clear and it's very wise not to speculate about um, the Lord's work. Some people may think that that's because um, we think too low of what the Lord is capable of. We're too cynical about what God could do, but it's actually not that at all. It's that when we speculate about how the Lord will work in the particular lives of our people, we actually restrict and constrain their faith. And we don't see how massively wonderful God's work can be through his revealed word, which we're gonna see that incredible potential later on in the passage. He doesn't speculate. Second, he doesn't recommend a pattern of action for the Lord. He doesn't have a game plan for the Lord to work. He just waits. Waiting may be the most difficult aspect of ministry watching people that you love, that you've poured energy into, that you've prayed for and agonized over, and you see no perceptible change. Oh, Lord, you know. That's what the prophet responds. Perhaps most important, Ezekiel doesn't give in to his own doubts. We're going to be plagued with looking at congregations that look utterly unchanged through uh, preaching and teaching. And it's going to seem very foolish um, to believe that God is at work through a means that seems uh, ridiculous. He doesn't lose hope. Oh, Lord, you know. The Christian life is a constant process of death and resurrection, of mortification and vivification. And sometimes that seems extremely agonizing. And as we survey the damage in our people and in our ministries, sometimes we lose confidence that God is still at work there, that God imperceptibly by the Spirit is making people new. You may be doubting this morning that He's doing that to you even, that the Lord is still at work in you. The Lord could bring you to vivification, to renewal. But to that devastating situation, to that horrible damage, a surprising solution is offered. And this is our second point, a surprising solution. The Lord calls Ezekiel to speak, to proclaim to bones. Try to hear the story as if you've never heard it before. and Think about how weird that is. Preaching over bones is a ridiculous thing to do. They can't hear. He probably was hoping no one would stumble into the valley and see him preaching over these dead bones. I had the very awkward experience of practicing a sermon in a place I was interning at. And I was sitting, looking over empty, empty seats and uh, set up for church, but it's the day before. And I'm, I'm preaching and I'm trying to get into the sermon and I'm trying to time myself and make sure I know how long this is gonna be and moving through the motions. All of a sudden, someone steps into the room in the back. I have to stop and say, I'm sorry, I'm, I have not lost it. <laughs> I'm not crazy yet. I am practicing a message for tomorrow. And, um, but that's how foolish preaching is frequently. It's looking out over people that seem like nothing is happening in them. They're just sitting there, especially in Presbyterian circles, not reacting at all to what you're saying. And it is horribly discouraging it is very discouraging and it's foolish to take the pulpit week in and week out without perceptible change. The Spirit uses the reading, the larger catechism tells us, but especially the preaching of the word as an effectual means of convincing and converting sinners. Holiness and comfort comes through faith, it says, unto salvation. If the Lord grants you this ministry of preaching, it's so necessary to believe that something is actually happening through preaching, even when it looks like nothing is going to happen. A recent graduate of our seminary said to me about the discouragement of preaching, it feels like I am giving birth to stillborn babies week in and week out. The people have no response and it doesn't seem like what I'm doing matters. It doesn't seem like what I'm doing has any effect on them. Look at the steadfastness of Ezekiel. Look at the foolishness of his craft, prophesying to dead bones. They can't hear, they can't respond. And this will be the very experience of many uh, of preachers and many of you as you Maybe you're already doing that in your own preaching and speaking. Oh Lord, can they even hear what I am proclaiming to them? But the most amazing thing happens, doesn't it, in our text, the most amazing thing happens. The Spirit gives life, and that's our third section. The Spirit gives life. Very similar to the way that the first creation of Adam was lifeless, there was a two-stage process to Adam being created, and then the Spirit coming into him to give him life, now the Lord recreates his people through an interesting, kind of strange, two-stage process. In the first half, there is a miracle that brings bone back to bone, and flesh and sinews are wrapped around these people. A new creation has begun. But lest Ezekiel get proud of his own activity in prophesying over the dead bones... After all these people are knit back together and in flesh, they are still dead. They're still dead. And so the Ezekiel himself has to wait for the second movement of the Lord supernaturally to bring these people back to life. If you remember in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the horrible evil witch who has uh, all of the world under the spell such that it's always winter and never Christmas, is shooting her magical powers to bring these people uh, and enslave them into uh, stone pillars. And what does Aslan do to bring them back to life? He, He breathes on them and they are restored. 1 Corinthians 15 50 says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. The spirit does come and breathe on these descendants of Abraham and the Lord renews and restores an exiled people and brings them home. And he promises that he's going to take them back to their land. And this morning, as we close, I have to ask you, do you believe this? Do you believe that this could actually be true because it's important it's really important if you believe that the resurrection could actually be true our ministries our jobs our family life will be utterly transformed by our conviction that god can raise the dead and he can put us back together even in this life Lean into the resurrection in your ministries. Lean into the hope of the age to come. It's not foolishness. It looks foolish. It looks utterly crazy to preach over people who are like these bones, dead. There's a, an incredible testimony to the confidence of the resurrection in um, the second uh, Maccabees book, chapter seven. We don't believe that this is an inspired text, but uh, the reformed and the church throughout time has seen these books as useful for the church, um, useful to be read even publicly. And in Second Maccabees chapter seven, <clears throat> King uh, Antiochus is putting to death seven sons with their mother watching them. And he's calling them to surrender their faith and their confidence in the Jewish God. And he is dismembering them. I won't go through the the very bloody and gruesome details, but he's dismembering them. He's, He's cutting them limb from limb. And here's what the second brother says when he's called on to give up his faith and his confidence. He responds to the king You accursed fiend, you are depriving us of this present life, but the king of the universe will raise us up to live again forever. The third brother, as he's being put to death, it was heaven that I received these, my members, for the sake of his laws. I disregard them from him. I hope to receive them again As he was killed, even the king and his attendants marveled at the young man's spirit because he regarded his sufferings as nothing. The mom pleads with the youngest child before he is put to death. Don't give up your confidence. Everything that is taken from you in this life will be restored. Everything that is sliced out of your life hopelessly and full of discouragement, will be given back to you in the resurrection. Isn't this the hope that the Lord gives to his disciples in Mark 10? They say, Lord, haven't we left everything for you? And he responds, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers, children and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. Lean into the resurrection. If Jesus was not raised, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, our faith is futile and we're still in our sins, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of all who have fallen asleep. And so Paul can speak of our deaths as just falling asleep because we're going to be awoken again by the Lord. The devil would have you think that your life is done after you die. The devil would have you think that what you're doing in this life is wasted and meaningless. But Paul can finish 1 Corinthians 15 and say, because of the resurrection, brothers, brothers, your labors in the Lord are not in vain. Lean in to the resurrection. The resurrection is not to crucifixion what dessert is to an already satisfying meal. What do I mean by that? It's not that we're already satisfied with the crucifixion of Christ, and that's the end of the story. And if there's anything else, that's a nice way to kind of finish things off. The resurrection is utterly, substantially necessary for our lives and our work as we go and do PhDs or as we go home to our families. It is utterly necessary to believe that Jesus, by the power of the Spirit, will raise us from the dead. Christ will one day speak to you and to you and to you and to you and say, come forth from the grave. He will open the graves, just like our text says, and restore you. This is, uh, for me, a very significant day in a certain sense because my grandmother died uh, one year ago this week, and we drove and put her in the grave, I think almost precisely one year ago today. And these questions pressed on me in that season. Is this all real, what we confess as Christians? And Christ says to us, you will rise again. I'll close uh, with this end of a poem by uh, Gerard Manley Hopkins. He, He gets tired of talking about nature, man's nature. And at one point he just bursts out, enough, the resurrection, a heart's clarion, away grief's gasping, joyless day's dejection. Across my foundering deck shone a beacon, an eternal beam. Flesh fade and mortal trash fall to the residuary worm. World's, wild fi- world's wildfire leave but ash. In a flash, at a trumpet crash, I am all at once what Christ is since he was what I am. And this jack, joke, poor, potsherd, patch, matchwood, immortal diamond is immortal diamond. In my flesh, I will see God, we confess, and this changes everything. Let's pray. Lord, Our faith is incredibly weak. And it's hard to go back to the stacks and believe in the resurrection. It's hard to open up a book and believe that you are making this work matter. You are making all things new, Lord. And nothing that is offered up to you, sacrificed, Lord, in this life, is a waste. Help us to believe this. In Jesus' name, amen.